This evening we'd like to consider a teaching from Hebrews chapter 9. We'll give our attention to 11 through 22, but we're going to begin reading in verse 1 of Hebrews 9, which is on 1,192 of your pew Bibles. We want to read the Word of God this evening under the heading of Our Mediator and Deliverer. Our Mediator and Deliverer from Hebrews chapter 9. Let's give our attention to God's Word this evening. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which there was a lampstand and a table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests would go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. 
And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Here ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing to it. And then we're going to invite you also to turn with me to Lord's Day 5 in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is on page 205 in your Forms and Prayer book. And we will read all of the questions of Lord's Day 5. We begin with question 12. I'll read the question and I'll invite you to respond in unison with the answer. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? God requires that His justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Can we make this payment ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. And flip the page to question 14. Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? One who is a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also true God. My most dear friends, you may have noticed that this evening we move into the second section of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Days 5-31, through that pertain to our deliverance by God's grace. Lord's Days 2-4 through deal with the subject of our guilt and our sin before God. Lord's Day 2, if you remember, reminds us of how we know our sinfulness. We know it by God's law. Lord's Day 3 reminds us where our sin comes from. It comes from the fall. And Lord's Day 4 shows us that according to God's justice, He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. If the catechism ended there, at the end of Lord's Day 4, there would be no hope. The verdict would be clear, wouldn't it? We're guilty. Every single one of us here in this room has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we would all be destined to hell. But the note of joy needs to be struck here this evening. The catechism doesn't end with Lord's Day 4. Because the Bible doesn't end with man's sin and judgment. But the catechism presses on through sin. It presses on through God's judgment. And like the first rays of the sun, after a dark, cold night, we are told that there is a way of deliverance. That's why it 
seems so strange to so many people that Lord's Day 5 is actually talking about hell. Instead of actually using the word hell, it will use words like, look at question 12, righteous judgment, punishment, justice, and the answer, justice satisfied. It's speaking of God's judgment upon sins. What the Catechism is seeking to make known for us this evening is that to truly know the Gospel of Jesus Christ is not just to know about His love. It's not just to know about His service. Not just to know about His dying for others. But that He has rescued His people from something. Something terrible. Something that none of us want to experience. Eternal death and hell. Dear congregation, you need rescuing. Do you know that? Every single one of us needs to be rescued. Every single human being on this earth needs to be rescued. We're all sinners. God is terribly angry with our sins. And there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. But the evangelical message, the good news, is that that is not the end of our story. It is not the end of the Bible. But God has looked upon a world that is filled with sin. And His response is compassion and mercy. Being so moved by His love for lost sinners that He will provide, as the Catechism says, deliverance. There is deliverance from His righteous judgment. There is deliverance from the punishment that we deserve. There is deliverance from His justice. There is deliverance from hell. What the Catechism, in a word, in a sentence I should say, wants you to know this evening is that there is a way to heaven. Do you rejoice in that? There is a way to heaven for you. There is a way in which we can be delivered from our sins and our misery. And it is not by the law. It is not by earning your salvation. It is by God's grace. I want you to notice then our theme this evening. The way to heaven is redemption through God's mediator and deliverer. The way to heaven is redemption through God's mediator and deliverer. I want you to see that just in two movements this evening. God has provided the deliverer we need and God has provided the mediator we need. Let's look at that first point. 
the deliverer we need. As I just mentioned, we all need a deliverer. The Bible is very clear that you will either go to heaven or you will go to hell. Jesus said in Matthew 25 that when He returns from heaven to the earth, that He will separate the sheep from the goat, the goats. And some will go to eternal punishment and others to eternal life. Likewise, the Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. You see those two things contrasted. There is life, there is death. There is heaven, there is hell. But a lot of things in this world promise deliverance. Deliverance is being sold by many people, religions, and things in our world. We think this evening of something like the Roman Catholic Church, which might be an easy example to say that we will deliver you. The church, the mother church, will deliver you from sin and death and hell. Islam claims that Allah and His prophet Muhammad, He is the mediator. He is the deliverer. But not only this, we know that there are people today who peddle agendas similar to these things, though not shrouded in religion. One might think of the LGBTQ agenda that says to be delivered from the the society's norms on these certain things. That will be your deliverance. Even some sciences will say that to really unlock the mind, one needs an enlightenment from an archaic way of thinking. I put the question to you, dear listener, will any mediator do? But notice what the catechism says. The first thing we need is, in question 12, is we need a deliverer who can satisfy. A key word. We need a deliverer who can satisfy God's justice. Therefore, the claims of His justice must be paid in full. Question 12. What it's saying is that not just any old mediator will do. We need a deliverer who can satisfy, who can appease God's wrath. We read this evening from Hebrews chapter 9. This was the issue that the author of Hebrews was facing as he penned this book. The author wrote, we estimate, around 65 A.D., which would have been at the beginning of a very challenging time for the church in history. Remember, the wicked Nero's persecution of Christians took place beginning in the year 65 A.D. and went through the year 68 The Jewish religion was a tolerated religion, but Christianity was not. We can read accounts even today of Christians who would have been fed to lions or other wild animals in the Roman games. Christians who would be crucified. Christians who would be impaled. Christians who would be persecuted throughout the Roman Empire. And so we know that the people who are Uh, the author of Hebrews is writing to, would have lived in a time with an intensification of persecution. We don't know if it was physical yet. We know that 
there was some persecution that was going on, some pressures that were being put upon them, whether it was social or physical. And the second thing we know about Hebrews, the great challenge on the author's mind is that there were many in the congregation who were tempted to go back to Judaism. Is Christ the deliverer we need? Or can we go back to the old covenant? Can we go back to the ceremonies of the law? Can we go back to the temple? Go back to the priesthood? We received God's grace in the Old Testament. These were Jewish Christians, we believe. They received the promises of God. They received the law of God. Why can't these things be our deliverer again? See, one thing we can forget as Reformed Christians in the 21st century is that yes, the Old Covenant was barbaric in a sense, with a lot of bloodshed and ceremony and pomp and circumstance, but it was quite beautiful. That's why I asked us to sing Psalm 84 before we approached the reading of God's Word this evening. Talking about the beauty of Zion. The joy of going to the temple. And you see, the author kind of outlines that in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1-10, through 10, where he talks about uh, the, the tabernacle in the wilderness. He's referring to Exodus chapter 25, where Moses is told to build a tabernacle on earth that is an image of, that is a replica of, the tabernacle that exists in heaven. It was an imitation of the dwelling place of God in heaven on earth. And in verses 1-10, through he outlines these things. In verses 1-3, through he talks about a tent that was erected in the wilderness, and after the exodus, God... Uh, instructed His people to create an outer tent with a courtyard and an inner tent. And then in the center of that inner tent existed the Holy of Holies. And brothers and sisters, I wish I could have seen how beautiful this thing would have been. There would have been a golden altar of incense. There would have been a golden Ark of the Covenant. Even the walls of the tent of the Holy Holy, Holy of Holies were said to be laced with gold, but the most glorious aspect was the menorah, the lampstand. Six lamps of gold. Do you imagine the radiance of beauty? The reflection that would have come off of the room and all the gold-plated things. Imagine how beautiful it would have been. Imagine it's a shining beacon of light. I wonder, and I hear I am pontificating, I wonder if that's what Aaron is thinking of when he says, may the Lord bless you and keep you and may His face shine upon you. Is he thinking of the holy of holies and the, the radiance and the brightness And here in this tent shrine was where the old covenant sacrifice would have been made daily. And Aaron, once a year, the high priest once a year year would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And he would, as it says in verse 7 of chapter 9, pour out the blood of a sacrificial lamb. 
All of it symbolic of God's forgiving power. His willingness to forgive sins by the shedding of blood. But look with me at verse 8 if you have a Bible. So telling is verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. The author of Hebrews, an expert on the Old Testament law, is saying that even though every day sacrifices were made for sins, even though every year on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, a great day of fear and tread and fearfulness, treading lightly as he went in into that room of radiant beauty and pouring out his blood upon the mercy seat, he says the people of God still did not have access to the presence of God. Why? Because the priests could not satisfy God's justice. So the author says, look, dear Christians who are tempted to go back to Judaism, verse 11, but when Christ appeared. An important word saying that when God revealed His purposes and plans for redemption, there was a better high priest. He in His paying for sins does not go to an earthly tabernacle that is an imitation of the heavenly places above, but He goes to a greater and a more perfect tent not made with hands. Spiritually speaking, He goes into heaven. To the heavenly dwelling place of God. And where the priests every day had to make sacrifices and every year went into the Holy of Holies and poured out their blood and the people of God still did not have access to God's presence. The author of Hebrew contrasts that in verse 12, but says Christ entered once and for all. That's the priest's work could only cover your sins for a short time. It could only atone for the sin until you sinned the next time. Look at what the author of Hebrews says. That Christ's sacrifice is complete. Christ's sacrifice is eternal. Christ is a better priest. He is a better deliverer than what the old covenant could give you. But Christ is not only the high priest, isn't He, beloved? Not only do we need a better priest, we need a better sacrifice. In the Old Covenant, in order for sinners to even dwell near the presence of God, they needed to become what we say uh, in our theological context, it means they needed to be ritually cleaned. And what I mean by that is they needed to be outwardly cleaned. They needed to be outwardly pure in order to go into the tabernacle. And so, if you read the book of Leviticus, you'll read all these instances of washing themselves and washing the utensils and sprinkling with blood. What it's doing is cleaning its outward, external 
aspect of the, of the man or of the utensil so that it might be able to be near the presence of God. That's what verse 13 is referring to when it says the purification of the flesh. It offers an external and outward holiness. But look at what the author is saying here. And do not miss this, for this might be one of the greatest errors that is present in our modern day church is that it could not cleanse inwardly. Do you understand that, dear congregation? The Old Testament sacrifices could not cleanse the soul. The author says that in verse 9. That it could not cleanse the conscience. Perfect the conscience. And so what would happen with these on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, he would come into the presence of God. He would sacrifice a young cow and they would burn its body and they would sprinkle its ashes upon the high priest so that his flesh might be sanctified. That he might be able to go into the presence of God and make sacrifice for the people. But in verse 14, the Son of God is said to be without blemish. So does he need to purify himself? No, he's already clean. That makes him a better high priest, a perfect high priest. He can go into the holy place to atone for sins. But not only that, he is the lamb of sacrifice. John the Baptist said of Jesus in John chapter 1, as Jesus is walking on the banks of the Jordan River, Remember what he says. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Elsewhere in Revelation chapter 5, John will receive a vision of heaven and he will describe Jesus Christ as the Lamb that was slain. The sense of verse 12 is that on the cross, Jesus ascended into heaven by His Spirit, goes into the holy place of God and pours out not the blood of bulls and calves, but pours out the blood of His sacrifice to atone for sins in a way an animal never could. To atone not for His sins, for He's a perfect high priest, but to atone for our sins. And look at what, I love the way that the writer speaks about Christ's blood in verse 12, I believe. Yeah, it's not verse 12. I don't remember where it is. But it speaks of it as a purifying blood. A blood, yeah, there it is, verse 13, for the purification of the flesh. Christ's blood purifies. It cleanses. It absolves. It disinfects. It washes us of all of our sins. Past, present, and future. Oh, how do we not need this cleansing blood of Christ? 
Dear congregation, Satan will want to accuse us of our failures. Satan wants to bring to our minds and remind us of our sins, remind us of our shortcomings. Even our friends and family sometimes can't overlook our faults. But Christ says, in Me, you are purified. You are cleansed. You are washed. You are clean. Purified from all your, as our ESV says, all your dead works. Another way to say this is that His blood purifies us purifies our consciences from acts that lead to death. From acts that lead to death. It captures the sense of our catechism. In question 13, all of our actions lead to death. Because we don't do these, we don't do actions in true faith. In fact, we increase our debt every day. It speaks of the destructive effect of sin in our lives. But it's Christ alone that can turn us from a life that leads to death to a life that is spent in love of the Lord Jesus Christ. What this all means is that if you go back to the Old Covenant, if you go back to the sacrifices, if you look to another Deliverer, no matter who it may be or what it may be, it will be of no avail. The author of the Scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit says, no, it's it's Christ and Christ's blood alone that can wash the foulest clean. It is Christ alone who can satisfy God's justice. And so I hope that you see that this is the Deliverer that you need. But there may be some of you here wondering, well, how do I receive this Deliverer? How do I get His benefits? How do I make what Christ has accomplished on Calvary's cross mine? But notice in question 12, it actually shows us how we can pray for our salvation. Look at what it says. First, there needs to be a confession of guilt that we deserve punishment now and in eternity. The sinner's prayer begins with recognizing that we are sinners. And that we don't make excuses for our sins. We don't say, well, I'm not as bad as my wife or my brother, or my sister, or at least I'm not some other bad character, but we become someone by the Holy Spirit who says like David, I have sinned against you and you alone, O God. Our mouths are stopped. There's no more excuses. We deserve the punishment, but we pray secondly to escape the punishment. As question 12 says, we pray like the righteous publican who beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's not enough to just say that I'm a sinner, but I need to call out to God for mercy. And we pray that we return to God's favor. This is not just a desire then to escape hell but it's a desire to live for God on earth. 
That our lives no longer be ruled by selfishness, but selflessness. And that since God can be and is merciful to us, we shall serve Him with all of our lives. Congregation of our Lord, have you received Jesus Christ by faith? Today's the day. Respond to His offer of salvation and come to Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. But there is a warning here, isn't there? The author takes great pains to show us that to forsake Christ, to forsake this better priest, to forsake this better sacrifice, is actually to forsake deliverance. It's to forsake salvation. Even in the Old Covenant, now that Christ has come, it's obsolete. It's been surpassed and pointing to Him. Its fulfillment has come. According to the Bible, Jesus is the only means of deliverance. So here is the application for us here this morning, this evening. Do not forsake Christ. Hold on to the Lord Jesus. And He will be the Savior you need. A second word of application is our culture understands the word deliverer to be more along the lines of an emancipator, a liberator from captivity who after He liberates us, He cares not for how we live our lives and our freedom. But this is not true of Christ. The author of Hebrews says He is a high priest who, deliver us, who delivers us, but He is also the King now who rules over us. We are to live for His glory. Dear congregation, if you have answered that question, yes, I live for Christ, then you must take Christ home here with you this evening. Do not leave Him at the door of the church, but apply Him to your lives. Follow His direction. Seek His will and obey Him out of love. And another application. In Christ, we have a clean conscience before God. Notice that the author of Hebrews says that in the Old Covenant, their conscience was not clean, but in Christ, our conscience is pure. Whatever sin you struggle with, in Christ, You are a new creation. And God's view of you is as if you have never sinned nor been a sinner. Quickly, we move on to our second point, the mediator we need. The author goes on to say, not only do we need a deliverer, but we need, and we need someone who can satisfy the justice of God, but verse 15, we also need a mediator. But what does the word mediator mean? It's a, it comes from the Greek word meso and eimi. Meso means middle, eimi meaning to go. To go between, to be a middleman. Now this can be a little bit dangerous for us uh, in our contemporary audience because we often think of a mediator as someone who finds a compromise. For example, if there's a disagreement between two nations, 
Uh, we might hire some lawyers and mediators who can come in and mediate and find a compromise between these two nations or peoples. But we need to be careful with that understanding because God, in His holiness, in His character, cannot compromise His holiness for you. He cannot compromise His holy nature for us sinners. But mediator can also mean another thing. A mediator can also be a guarantor. So I don't, what I want to suggest to you this evening is that the author of Hebrews is not saying that Christ is a mediator who works out a compromise between us and God, but He guarantees the promises of God. The old way of referring to this was to say that Christ was a surety. He is a better guarantor of God's promises. I want you to notice here as well in Hebrews chapter 9 that the author quotes at length Exodus 24. Exodus 24 is the chapter in the Old Testament that records the institution of the Old Covenant. Moses reads the law to the people there at the base of Mount Sinai. And this is the response of the people. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Then Moses gives some burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then Moses reads the book of the covenant and the people respond again in verse 7 and say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And then Moses takes the blood of that offering and sprinkles it on the book. And then sprinkles it on the people as a sign that they are in covenant with God. You might ask this evening, why does this even matter? Why is this being quoted in Hebrews chapter 9? But there are characteristics here that bear analogy to the covenant we enjoy with Christ today. Notice that there are two parties. There is God and man. And they enter into covenant together based on the stipulations of the covenant. There was a death of an animal. And its blood was sprinkled on the book. And the people said, we will be obedient to God. That was the basis of the covenant. But look what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Even with all this pomp and circumstance, even though they just saw God thunder on the mountain, this covenant could not guarantee salvation. It cannot cleanse the sinner's conscience because sinners can't keep up their end of the bargain. Sinners keep sinning. Sinners increase their debt every day. And the Old Testament could not guarantee eternal life. The Old Testament could not guarantee the forgiveness of sins. Only Christ can guarantee and promise salvation. And so the author says, Christ is not only a better deliverer, but He's a better mediator. Because He 
uses the example of a will in verses 16 through 17. As many of you know, and many of you may have already done by now, but a lawyer will draw up a will and allot your possessions to various individuals, but until we die, what does that will mean? Nothing. It's just a piece of paper. And when we die, that's when it's validated and our possessions will be distributed. But while living, it's just a document. The implication is this, this evening. God has drawn up a will and He says that all those whom He calls shall have eternal life. And since there is no other deliverer or creature that can meet its conditions, Christ as the deliverer and mediator has died to validate His will for you. Just as a person who upon his death leaves his possession to his heirs, Christ has left the possession of eternal life for you. And when he holds up the cup in Luke 22 and says, this is the new covenant, he is saying that not, he, that not only that he stands between God and man, but that he guarantees whoever eats of this bread and drinks of this cup by faith will have eternal life. He is your guarantee. He is your promise. If you believe in Jesus Christ and He is your God, listen to what Christ is saying. I guarantee that I will cleanse your soul and save you on that last day. That's the sense of question 15 of our catechism. We don't need to get into the details of it since the natures of Christ will be our subject in Lord's Day 6. But the main concern is that redemption can only come from God. And since Christ is both God and man, since He is both priest and sacrifice, deliverer and mediator. He is the only answer to this question. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. The ashes of a heifer cannot purify the conscience. A priest cannot deliver you. The law cannot guarantee salvation. The author of Hebrews makes clear all of these things are only found in Christ Jesus, the Lord. So let's conclude this evening. Just like the First Testament, the law demanded that everything be purified with blood. But what we've learned is that it's the blood, not the blood of bulls and goats that can atone for sins. The blood we need is the blood of a mediator and deliverer who was willing to shed His blood in a substitutionary death in order to cover all of our sins and make a way for us to go to and to enjoy heaven for all of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Deliverer and the Mediator that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for His blood that was shed on Calvary's cross. Oh, how we 
needed a Savior like Him. We pray, Heavenly Father, that if there be any among us who have not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that You might touch their souls by the power of Your Holy Spirit. Call us unto Yourself. Win many for Your glory. And may we apply again and again the blood of Jesus to every sin, for He he purifies our conscience from the accusations of the evil one. We give You thanks for Him, and we ask that we might praise Him this day and for all of eternity. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.